Let's begin with a word of prayer, folks. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for uh, just gathering us here, Lord, allowing us to come freely. Uh, so many places in the world, it's just not so. And we do praise you, Lord, that we can come together. We can experience the joy that comes from fellowshipping, the, the fellowship of your spirit. And we pray, Father, for this time. Open our hearts, we pray, that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts that understand what you have for us individually and what you have for us as a church, as a body. We thank you. We pray now that you would go before us and do that work that only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we began John chapter 6 and looked at a couple of things. We looked at uh, what we sort of classically call in Christian circles the feeding of the 5,000, which was probably between 15, 10 and 15,000 people because 5,000 men, and, and we talked about that a little bit. And then we saw that Jesus took these loaves from this little boy's essentially sack lunch and he broke them and broke them and gave them to the guys and they broke them and they fed a huge amount of people. At the end of that, uh, it says that he perceived, he discerned in his heart that the people were going to come and take him by force and you know, put him up on their shoulders, I guess, and haul him off to Jerusalem and install him as king because he fed them. And we're told, we remember, we blended the gospel accounts a bit and looked at different accounts, seeing that that miracle is in all four. We looked at the fact that Jesus perceived again in his spirit that Things weren't right, and he dismissed the crowds. He sent them home. He said, go. And then, seeing also that he dismissed his disciples as well. They got into the boat that they had all come over to this place. We looked at um, uh, where there was probably Mount Arbel, and if I'm wrong, I'll find out when we get to heaven, but it's the place that really fits geographically. There are a lot of flat places and a lot of mountainous places in, around the Sea of Galilee, but not a lot of flat mountainous places. So with the gentle slope of that mountain and then Jesus going up on top afterwards, it, it fits because it's near Tiberias, we're told, and we'll see in the text this morning. At any rate, he goes out across the sea, or he sends his guys out across the sea, and a, a huge storm comes up. And uh, again, looking at the different accounts in three of the Gospels, that these guys were terrified of the storm. And then when he came walking to them on the waves, they were more terrified probably of him than they were the storm. Uh, looked at Storms 101 and Storms 102, where the first time Jesus was in the boat with them, and the second time he sent them off in the boat by themselves. And that's often what he does with us. <laughs> it's like, Lord, I just don't even sense your presence in this storm. This is horrible. I mean, I'm getting tossed around in my life, and I don't know which end is up. And, and yet he's there. He's there. And, and we're to take courage from that. Well, we looked at the connection between those two events, and the connection was this, that they wanted a bread king. They wanted a guy because he gave them food, free food. And free food in those days was remarkable. Lots of free food was even more remarkable to the point where they were glutted. And sending them off, he wanted them to begin to connect. We talked about their view of him was low and he wants to elevate their view of him, that he's more than just the provider. Yes, he wants us to ask him for our daily bread. That's part of the disciples' prayer in Matthew chapter 5. And yet, more than that, he wants us to recognize that he is the one who is the bread. He didn't come to bring bread. He is the bread from heaven. We're going to look at that today. And so when we go back and we see the connection between the two of these, he was saying, look, you've got to realize that if I can provide food for all these people with a little boy's two fish and five barley loaves, I can handle the events of your life. And so then they go out on the sea and they should have, if they had had a right view, they'd, they would have immediately gone to, you know what? Jesus has this. He has this. We're good. We know that nothing is going to happen to us that he's not going to allow. And that's, again, the application to us is huge, guys. To realize, I mean, when Isaiah says, no weapon formed against you shall prosper, that there are things that happen, there are people that come against, there are things that go on in our lives, there are trials, fiery ordeals, James says, pyrosmos is the Greek word, and it means fiery. That, and and the, the, I was looking up the word crucible the other day, uh, and I just did a Google search for crucible, and it said that it's the vessel through which the elements are placed into, and great heat is applied, the impurities rise to the top, 
And God's the one who scoops them away. That's what James, the picture that he draws there of the trials we go through. And he says, count it all joy. Why? And as a young Christian, I would scratch my head and go, are you out of your mind? Count it all joy when I'm going through this thing? And of course, those trials aren't for the moment pleasant. It's hard when your, your life is pressed in. And yet, to come to that place of having a higher view of Jesus, that he's got this, he has my life in his hands. Nothing is beyond the scope of his influence in my life. To actually realize that sometimes he engineers trials because he wants to work in my heart, work in my life. So we went through the first 22 verses and in verse 22, or, or first 21 verses, verse 22, it says, on the following day. Now, that few, few words coming into verse 22 really sets the context for what's going on because he's looking back, what happened the day before, all of this stuff happened, the guys got released, the crowds got released and all that. And, and then it says that, when Jesus discerned that they wanted him as an earthly king, that was not what he was there for. Uh, so he sends them off in the boat because their intentions, was, was, uh, they didn't want to be with him. And we'll see this morning, they wanted to get something from him. You look at a great deal of religious programming that's out there today, and it's sickening because it's all geared towards getting something from Jesus as opposed to having the fellowship that he offers, the fellowship of his spirit, to having that intimate relationship with him where I can come and pour out my heart to where I can come. And he says, you can call me Abba, Papa. You can call me Daddy. And to have the quality and the depth of relationship that he offers as opposed to this short-circuited version of he is just there to do my bidding, to actually give me stuff. And yes, we pray. When we pray, we ask for things. But folks, I want to encourage you, if your prayer life falls short, if it's just the shopping list, that's what I call it in my life because there are times where, and he wants us to give our petitions to him, to ask him. He says, if you don't, you don't have because you don't, you don't ask. And when you do ask, you ask with wrong motives. And so yet in our prayer life, he wants it to be more than the shopping list, more than the petitions. He wants it to be communion, fellowship with him intimacy, a beautiful relationship is what he offers. And, and I think about in Matthew 11, when he says, when you're weary and you're heavily laden, come to me. I'll give you rest for your soul. I will work in your circumstances. I will work in your life. I will do so much more than give you a free lunch. It, 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 he's so much bigger than that. And that's the point of this passage. Uh, also in verse 22, it says, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except the one which his disciples had entered and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples the night before, but his disciples had gone away alone. So here the crowd comes back. It's the next day. They come back to the shoreline at the base of Mount Arbel, at the base of where he had fed all the people, uh, a little north of Tiberias, and they're kind of scratching their heads. They saw Jesus dismissed the guys in the boat. The boat left. There's no other boats there. And they can't figure out, well, maybe they're waiting around for Jesus. I don't know. It doesn't say, but perhaps sticking around, wondering if he's up on the mountain or when is he going to come back? They're looking for him. They're seeking him. And, and so uh, they saw that he didn't go with them. It's, it's, confusing to them. In verse 23, it says, however, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. So in verse 24, when the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Now, I want to take a look at a couple of slides here. Uh, Richard, could you kill the lights again? Thank you. All right. This is modern-day Capernaum, and you can call it Capernaum, Capernaum. I've heard teachers, I usually say Capernaum. Um, this is in the foreground, it's modern-day Capernaum. In the background, of course, is the Sea of Galilee. Now, if you look where I did a couple of lines, because of the haze of the photograph, I outlined Mount Arbel. You can see on the, the far right side of Mount Arbel, those are the cliffs that we talked about, we looked at briefly last week. And you can see on the left side of Mount Arbel where the mountain slopes gently down to the Sea of Galilee. To, it's a big freshwater lake. So looking from Capernaum back, this is where they came from the night before. And this is where the people are. They're right at the base where the mountain intersects the lake on the left side is where the people gathered 
hard to, and they're looking for Jesus. They're, they're basically wanting more food. And so they're trying to figure out where he is. And he's come across, met the guys in the storm. And then as soon as he got in the boat, remember it said that they were immediately on the shore. And they were here at Capernaum. Now the next slide. This is modern, a modern picture of the ruins of Capernaum. It's a very small place. You know, most of these places in the Bible, uh, you know, before I went to Israel, I had these ideas that these were great big places. And when it talks about these nations that came against the Israelites and all of that, it was like a little walled city. And, and so, again, a very small area. If you see the, the round thing in the middle there, that's the Catholic Church built a great big huge uh, building over the top of Peter's house, what's thought to be Peter's house. You actually walk into this thing and you look down through the glass floor into the house. Uh, and it's pretty garish actually, <laughs> in my opinion, but I'm glad it's there. I mean, the Catholic Church did preserve a lot of the antiquities in Israel, and so they're there for us to enjoy today. Now, just on to Towards the bottom, right in about the middle of the, the slide, you see a large building there, and that's the synagogue at Capernaum. And when he is here at this place, his teaching usually happens in the synagogue. And the people would be flooded out into the courtyards and into the area surrounding it. Uh, when uh, my wife and I stood on the railing outside the synagogue and looked out over the ruins of the houses, I mentioned to you one time before that I, I saw some columns that were different than the others. And uh, our guide pointed out that that was what the father would do to add on to the house when his son was getting married. Because... Uh, and, and the Lord completely unlocked Jesus saying, um, in my father's house are many dwelling places. I'm going to make a, a, prepare a place for you. That wedding language that we talked about earlier in this gospel. So just so you know, this is where they're at. It's a small place, a little point on the lake. And uh, this is what it looked like 2,000 years ago, except the ruins were actually houses and there wasn't a big blob in the middle. So uh, just as a point of reference, again, it's important that we see that these are physical locations as we study God's word, that they're not just a Bible story, that it's actually a place that's real. And these are events that are real. They've been recorded for us and ensured the way that the Lord brought together the New Testament. It's absolutely ensured that it came to us in its entirety and it came to us whole. And we can put stock in the fact that it's inerrant and that, it's, that every word is inspired. Verse 25. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus said, well, I strolled across the lake last night. No, it doesn't say that. <laughs> he doesn't answer their question. Again, they're looking for free food. And they are perplexed because they... Again, they're scratching their heads here. They're saying, well, all right, we went to where you were yesterday, this morning, and we couldn't find you. We knew you left separately from the men, and there was only one boat. And so they get over to Capernaum, and they're going, how did that? You know, and I would imagine with Jesus, there was always a point where he went, just never mind. I, I just, I'm good. I, I don't need to understand the nuts and bolts of this thing. And they couldn't, and he doesn't explain it to them. Very often you see that when people question Jesus, he just blows off the question. And he goes right into what he wants to tell them. That's what he does here. He's, I want you to know, too, he's not surprised. He's not disappointed with these people. Something that I was thinking about as I was studying for this morning and, and just looking at this, Jesus is not surprised. He's not bummed out that these guys, these guys aren't getting it. He knew their hearts. If you go to verse 64 in the same uh, chapter, it says, but there, he's, he is telling the people and he's telling his disciples, and I think that's significant. He says, there are some of you who do not believe. And then John goes on to tell us in verse 64, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. Interesting. So we see here in that verse, we see a picture of the foreknowledge of God. And people want to grapple with it. It was no trouble for Jesus to know ahead of time who was going to be with him and who was going to betray him. It's trouble for us sometimes. We want to argue about, well, did, you know, is it the foreknowledge of God and the predestiny of God? And, and is it the free will of man? And, and you know, how does that work? And how do you reconcile those? Because they seem opposite to one another. And, and again, for Jesus, it's, it's a no-brainer. We'll see another passage this morning that deals with the same thing. And he 
actually speaks from both sides of the issue. And I love that because he's not wrestling over it. The point, though, is that he was not going to allow them to enthrone him on the basis of material gain. Very, very important. Uh, And again, I don't want to pound it into the ground, but there is so much out there that appeals to material gain. And when that overflows into the body of Christ, it's, it's, I think it's sickening. It's, it's just so misrepresentative of who Jesus is and what he's about. Yes, he may prosper us. Yes, he may uh, cause us to gain materially. But that's not his mission in our lives. This is also a warm-up for the Antichrist. You might be thinking, well, what do you mean by that, Pastor John? Well, He's going to come with the answers to man's material and physical problems. He's going to be hailed by many as being the great solution to man's woes. But it will only be on the earthly, physical plane. It will not be spiritually. We know halfway through his reign, I'm not going to get into a whole eschatological deal this morning, but halfway through he's going to commit the abomination of desolation and actually set himself up as God in the sanctuary of the temple. Uh, So uh, the point is, is that this is a weak foundation for these people, and Jesus knows it. He's the eternal king, and he's standing in the midst of his creation, and he's, he's, he's just wanting to communicate these guys, get past the physical blessings that I'm offering you. I want to communicate something so much deeper. I want to communicate who I am on a level that you can grab hold of that will absolutely transform your life. It's still what he does. He's in the business of transforming our lives. I don't care if you've been a Christian for five minutes or 50 years. He is still in the business of transforming your life and my life. That's what his purpose is. He wants to reach into the deepest part of us. And as long as I have this short-circuited idea of him as being some guy that I can order around and I can command him to produce these blessings, so-called blessings, I don't have a, a deep enough view that he is the author of my life. And that he holds every breath that I take. He upholds all things by the word of his power, we're told in Hebrews chapter 1. Verse 26, the question has been, uh, they said, well, how did you get here, Jesus? And he says, he answered them and he said, most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw or perceived the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. He's saying, you're not seeking me because you saw the miracle. You're seeking me because you ate the miracle. And there's a difference, folks. I mean, He wants to provide. Again, he wants to be Lord in our lives. But it's so much more than what we have to eat. And yes, you know, we fully support ministries that are out there to feed people. I think it's great. Uh, Stacy and I went to a benefit dinner on Friday evening with Love, Inc. and uh, upstairs. And they've had a new uh, director of executive director for the last little over a year. Uh, He's brought Christ back into that organization and we were really impressed with the work that they're doing. They're doing a fabulous work. Uh, and I, I had lunch with Heath Playcheck, the, the guy that oversees that ministry and um, sold out for Christ. And uh, when he uh, had some events transpire in his life, he essentially marched back into that ministry and he brought Jesus to the front. And people don't get exposed to that ministry without being exposed to the gospel, presented and lived out. Fabulous. Good stuff. Interesting, as he's responding to these people, remember in chapter two, it said that he didn't entrust himself to man for he knows what's in man. On to verse 27. Now, verse 27 is a paradox. He says, do not labor uh, for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the son of man will give you. Because God the Father has set his seal on him. Now, when anybody used a seal in ancient cultures, that was to verify and validate the authenticity of the thing that was sealed. When they put a seal on Jesus' tomb, a Roman seal, they sealed it up. And the Roman centurions, the ones who were appointed to guard the thing, 
put a seal on it so that that would not be, anybody that broke it would be subject to death. And what he's saying here is God has set his seal on the son. I am the bread. I am the one. And, and the father has set his seal on me. He's saying I'm the authentic one from the father. But the interesting thing, the paradox here is he's saying, don't labor for the physical and labor for the eternal. I mean, wait a minute. I, I thought that, I mean, the Bible says if I don't work, I don't eat. And I may even be considered worse than an infidel. I mean, that's pretty strong language. So he's saying don't labor for the food which perishes. It's, but, but that's not the point that he's making here, you guys. Uh, and then he says, labor for the food which endures to everlasting life. Well, wait a minute, I thought salvation was free. You're asking me to work for it? Is that what he's saying? No, that's why it's paradoxical here. This is a really interesting verse. We have a responsibility to make a living, but, and I use that word, but, remember, it cancels what's just been said. I don't tell my wife, I love you, but, <laughs> that's not good. <laughs> It's, I love you, Anne, but a but is really proper here. It says human beings labor. We want to work. We want to get it done. We want to build, build, build more, more, more ambition, ambition, ambition. And we want to just make that thing happen. And what he's saying is it's not about building your own little kingdom here on this earth. It's not about that at all. Don't labor for that. Look at how much energy you put in. I mean, in my career, I've been exposed to a number of billionaires. And it's like, oh my goodness, one of these guys, I mean, he had a reputation of breaking a phone a week <laughs> as he slammed it down. He was one of the most unhappy individuals I ever knew in my entire life. And yet the thing that was a common thread that I saw with these guys is they were never happy. They never felt like they topped out. They never got to a point where there was satisfaction. It was just build, build, build. That's the sort of, and it's not just billionaires. We can do that in our lives too. The Bible calls it selfish ambition. And when it's focused on me, what can I build? What can I do? The deceitfulness of riches, pursuing those as an end to themselves, and it is deceitful can take me right down the wrong path. And so he's saying, don't labor for that. Don't labor for the food which perishes in the big picture but labor for the food that endures to eternal life and, and that, that the Son of Man will give you. Jesus is saying here, what bread is to a starving man, I am to the deepest part, the spiritual man, the deepest part of who you are. That's what he's, that's what he's putting forth. He's saying, labor for what I give you. That's interesting. He's saying, work for what I'm going to give you. And that's what he says. So it's not about a works-based salvation. It's not about a works-based relationship with him. If there's anything that he's uh, condemning about work, I mean, I think about Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Well, what's a wage? It's something you work for. And that's the idea here. That's the thing that he's bringing across. Paul, in uh, Philippians chapter 3, we talked about it a little bit at the men's breakfast yesterday. Um, by the way, thank you to the ladies that came down. Several ladies came down and uh, put that all together for us and then cleaned up after us and did all that. That was great. Um, but in Philippians 3, Paul says, I counted all as loss. He goes into this whole pedigree, his whole background, and he talks about being a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, and, and being like the guy. I mean, he, he had a, a huge pedigree. And he said, you know what? I counted all his loss. Yeah, he had built his own little kingdom in, in Judaism. He says, done. Why? That I may know Christ, that I could know him, and, and that I could have this, he says, Christ Jesus, my Lord, in that passage. Personal pronoun, my Lord. He's talking about a personal relationship with Christ. That's what Jesus is bringing out here. We look at Abraham. Uh, Genesis 13 says that Abraham was loaded with livestock, silver, and gold. He was a wealthy man. He had a lot of stuff. And then in Hebrews chapter 11, 
Uh, it says, by faith, Abraham dwelt in the land of promises in a foreign country, dwelling in tents. He never built a house with Isaac and Jacob. And that's implied generationally, not with them, his son and grandson. Uh, the heirs to, with whom the same promise, for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Abraham was doing, Paul was doing what Jesus is laying out in verse 27. They were not laboring for the food that perishes. They were laboring. Uh, do you want to share that with me, Ron? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I hate it when that happens. It's, I've been in a theater when my phone went off and I thought it was silence. Um, but seriously, he, he says, you know, don't labor for those things. Those, that's the wrong heap that you're trying to get to the top of. And, and it's, you can work all your life and end up on top of the wrong heap. It doesn't mean that we're not ambitious with our careers and all of that stuff, but it means that we have perspective. And our perspective is, my relationship with the Lord is infinitely more important than anything I can do here, anything at all. As I was studying yesterday, a, a question came to me and I'm gonna share it with you because I was convicted about it. How much time do I spend seeking eternal things? Life is busy. And I don't say that to condemn anybody or to put anybody on the spot. I mean, I, it just caused me to stop and reflect, Lord, I want to spend more time seeking the things above. I want to spend more time being effective for you in my life. And I, I think it's a good question for us to just simply ask ourselves from time to time because we can get so busy with the work. I can get so busy and I'm very busy with the work of the ministry that I can actually begin to uh, have it impact me in a, in a, in a negative way. And, and I don't ever want to be, I don't ever want us to be like the church in Ephesus where we're doing all the right stuff. But our hearts are on. That's exactly what Jesus' indictment for that church was. We were talking in our men's group on Tuesday night about doing the right thing with the wrong heart. God hates it. We looked in Isaiah chapter one, where the people in Israel were doing all the right things. They were doing all the stuff that God had ordained. And he said, don't bother. I don't want to hear, I'm paraphrasing, but it's what he said. You're doing it with the wrong heart. That's what he's after. And, and it's like, no, I, I think Oswald Chambers wrote, he said, so many times our service to Christ is the greatest enemy of our communion with Christ. And I think that that's just a good exhortation for all of us because we live in a material world that's throwing stuff at us all day long, every day. And it, it requires intention to stay centered in Christ. We have to intentionally do that. It requires structure, intention, and, and simply feeding into that which he's laid in front of me. Because none of us is above cooling off, guys. My heart is broken in the past with people that I've seen that have walked away. And we're going to see later in this chapter, there are a great deal of people that walk away. And I know it broke Jesus's heart. And we'll talk about that next time we uh, get into the Gospel of John here. The need in my life, the need in your life, is to be more a man of God by his Holy Spirit or a woman of God, more a person who's seeking the bread of life. That's what he wants. Verse 28, they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? They're still stuck on labor. Interesting. The Jews looked at a man as being good, bad, or in between. And there were three levels. You were either a bad person or you were a good person and you were, or you were in between. And what they would talk about, because their whole shtick was works related, was that if you like can do one more good thing, then you can get elevated to being a good person instead of an in-between person. And that's actually culturally how they looked at things. And so when they're asking Jesus, well, what can we do? They're saying, how can we get elevated by something we do into your good graces, Jesus? And, and it was a reasonable question for them, again, knowing, understanding, they're not getting it. They don't see the spiritual significance of what Jesus is doing here. And as he's laying these things out, 
He is wanting to bring them to that elevated place, but it's not depending upon what they're doing. It's depending upon a whole attitude of the heart that they're missing. Verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he sent. He's saying, believe, lean on, trust in fully, rely on, rest on, lean your whole life on, believe in him who he has sent. It's not spiritual busyness. It's that quiet place in our hearts where we bear ourselves to him and say, Lord, here am I. Here am I. Please work in me. Please transform my life. I yield myself to you. Use me according to your will, not according to my puny ideas. But use me. But use me once you've filled me. I don't want to serve you in emptiness. Folks, you can't serve from an empty cup. Don't try. It'll lead to futility, frustration, and emptiness. You will not be filled. We serve from the relationship. It is never service as a means towards the relationship. And he simply wants to develop the relationship, to deepen the relationship, to be, have us in that place where he can see our hearts as being moldable and pliable and tender towards him. And he honors that. He resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble, to those that say, you know what, Lord, I'm not playing games. I don't, I don't have anything really to offer in and of myself, but I, I know you want to use me. So how would you do that? Let your service flow from the, the depth and the beauty of the relationship. Don't try to make it a means towards. It's a tough road. So they said to him in verse 30, What sign will you, sh will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do, Jesus? I know, some of you are smiling. I'm smiling too. It's like, Really? Besides feeding 15,000 people with five barley loaves and two sardines? Besides rebuking the waves and the sea? Besides healing the sick and cleansing lepers and raising the dead? What sign do you want me to do? <laughs> Open your eyes. And so often when we share the Lord with an unbelieving world, they say, well, I yeah, just and You get reasons not to believe. Not that there's any foundation in fact whatsoever because these people had all of this stuff. But you know what? Miracles never produce faith. If you rely on the miracle as an end to itself, it produces a shallow, low faith. Faith in the fact that he can give me lunch. Not faith in the fact that he can transform my life. That he can save me from myself. That he can deliver me from sin once and for all. That he can give me eternal life. They're saying it's, there's not enough evidence, Jesus. Willful ignorance is powerful powerful and it's i don't see it because i don't want to see it's sticking my fingers in my ears and screaming la 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 as you're trying to talk to me because i don't want to hear it i don't want to see it and therefore it doesn't exist and that's exactly where these people are at verse 31 our fathers ate the manna in the desert now they're here, here now they're going to try to manipulate him and as it is written he gave them bread from heaven to eat well our fathers got food. Jesus, you fed us yesterday. Come on. They got manna. We want bread. These were hungry people, no doubt. They were. I mean, they were hungry. They weren't hungry for him. They were hungry for food. And he, when he did this, I mean, we're talking a society that lives from meal to meal. They don't... Uh, something my wife and I learned when we were in Asia, uh, people, it's, they don't live because they have choices. They live to survive. And that's how these people were. So they were very justified in seeking Jesus for food. They just were missing the point altogether. I mean, as I mentioned last week, he could have kept feeding these guys, glutting them for the rest of their lives. He had the power to do it. But he didn't. Verse 32, then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you bread from the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. <laughs> Moses gave you bread from the sky. 
I give you bread from heaven. The manna was to satisfy a physical need. What he did yesterday was to satisfy a physical need. And I'm going to give you bread from heaven. And he's going to launch in here. Uh, verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He talks about he is the one who comes down from heaven. And you don't have to write this down. Well, you can if you want. I'm going to rattle off some scriptures here. In this chapter alone, verse 33, 38, 41, 42, 50, 51, and 58 all talk about coming down from heaven. Speaking of eternal life. Do you see why bread alone isn't, isn't it? Do you see why Jesus said it, it, it's, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God? And, and he's, he's saying it's not just for Israel, but for the life of the world. This is not an exclusive Israeli deal here. He's not saying, okay, chosen people, this is just for you. And it, the, the salvation in the gospel was offered to them. And as they rejected, it went to the Gentiles, anybody that wasn't Jewish. But his point is in being the bread from heaven. Absolutely, is eternal life. And how does that measure up over free lunch? I mean, do you see why he is so emphatic here? And he's wanting to get these people to understand there is such a vast difference. A huge difference. If I feed you, you're going to be hungry again in a few hours. But if I give you the bread from heaven, my body, you're going to be satisfied for eternity. There's a lot at stake here. Verse 34, and they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. So they're saying, yeah, we, well, we want life. Watch the progression here. We see already that the Father, we, Jesus has said the Father wants to give life. And the, the second is the Father sent the true bread down from heaven to give that life. And now he has them saying, we want life. And now he's going to define what that life is. Verse 35. And Jesus said to them, I am the covenant name of, name of God, one of the seven I am's in this gospel. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. This is an emphatic statement, guys. Uh, he's saying, I alone, in contrast to all others and everything else, am the bread of life. Singular. You might think, well, well that's not very inclusive. What are you talking about? It's the most inclusive thing that's ever been stated. He says, whosoever will come, let him come. That's very inclusive. Well, that's pretty narrow-minded. Yeah, it is. Narrow is the gate that leads to life. And few are those that find it, but broad is the highway that leads to destruction. It's very narrow-minded. And I'll not make any exceptions or, or illusions to that being different. Jesus made very exclusive claims, and we do well to stand on those. Well, it's not very tolerant either. Well, maybe not according to your definition of tolerance. But it's the most tolerant thing in the universe that God would make a way for anybody to come and to eat this bread of life. And we're not going to change what the scripture says. We're just not. I don't care what happens. I don't care what group or what ism or whatever wants to try to shuffle things around. We stand on God's word. And we know that he honors it. Verse 36 but I said to you that you have seen me and yet you don't believe. Remember last week I said, you know, he gives this whole thing. We see the, the bread and the loaves and, and the fishes and then we see him walking on water. And, and, and from that point forward, he uses increasingly offensive language. And, and it's the, he's turning up the heat now and he will continue to turn up the heat. And we'll see when we get back and we finish out this chapter that he turns it up to the point where most people bailed. They just said, you know what? 
This is a hard saying. I can't bear it. I, I don't want to hear it. This guy is just so offensive and stumbling. And yet he says, that's the message. But I said to you that you've seen me and you don't believe. And all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Interesting. He says, all that the Father gives me. He's talking about God's sovereignty here. And the one who comes to me, I won't cast out. He's talking about man's responsibility. He says, those that the Father gives me and the one that comes to me. Again, this is no problem for Jesus to mix these two concepts. We want to separate them and we want to build a hill to die on to say, well, no, no, no. I agree with you know, some of those guys that they have five points and use the acronym TULIP and you know, I'm going to die on that hill. It's just all by God's pre preordained design and plan. There's no sense to evangelize because he already knows who's his and all of this stuff. And then there are those that say, no, 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 no. There's none of that. It's all based on man's free will. And it's just, you've got to choose. And if you don't choose, you, you filthy sinner, you're going to hell. Yeah, I mean, this whole deal. And Jesus says, you know what? All the ones that the Father has given me, they're mine. And that includes the ones that come to me. They're mine. Do you see how beautiful this is? I mean, this verse, this one verse reconciles that whole argument. Jesus didn't struggle with it. We, because we have finite minds and finite thinking, want to take that and separate those two and make major doctrinal stances on one side or the other, and he reconciles them. He speaks as though that is absolutely no trouble. He doesn't give any explanation for it. He's not offering pertinent exegesis towards that end. He's just saying that's how it is. The Father gives and people come. Both sides. That we don't understand, it doesn't mean it's not true. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said, if God was small enough for me to understand, he wouldn't be big enough to solve my problems. <laughs> I like that. And Jesus says, I will by no means cast that person out. Why? Verse 38, for I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up on the last day. Look at raise it up. Why does he use the word it? I, I believe he's talking about the physical frame of humanity. 1 Corinthians 13 and 15 talk about our resurrected bodies. They're not going to be the same as we have here. When he raises us up, we will have new bodies. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, the, the Corinthians had evidently asked him, so what are we going to be like in the resurrection? And he says, well, and, and this is weird because when I was in the Mormon church, they took a whole doctrine of the three levels of heaven from this. I have still to figure out how they could possibly make that stretch, but that's fine. And he said, you know, our resurrected bodies are going to be kind of like heavenly bodies. You know, there's the sun and there's the moon and there's the stars. They're all heavenly bodies, but they're distinct. They're different from one another. They're recognizable. I don't look at the sun and go, hey, look at the moon, honey. You know, no, we know, we recognize those. And he's saying the same thing. He's saying, you know, they're distinct. They're the same because they're heavenly bodies, but they're distinct from one another. And that's how our bodies will be in the resurrection when Jesus raises us up. What's the Father's will? That anyone who comes to me will never be cast out. Jesus is not wrestling. He's saying, well, um, let me share with you the doctrine of eternal security. And, you know, we're going to maybe draw a little line here and I need a chalkboard. Anybody got a chalkboard? He's not doing that. He's saying, I will never cast that person out. You can be secure. And if you belong to Jesus, if you've given your heart to him, if you repented of sin and you said, you know what, I'm sick of the old life. I want him. I realize he's a whole lot more than a bread king. I want to I commit my life to him and to learn his ways and to walk in that. I want a high view of who Jesus is because he came to offer me life, not just bread. 
You know, if that's where we're at, there is so much for him to work with. If we have a low view, we very much limit him because he will not violate your will. Verse 40, and this is the will of him who sent me that everyone who sees the son and believes in him may have everlasting life. There it is again. And I will raise him up at the last day. He's saying stop laboring for earthly things. Money, alcohol, drugs, power, control, possessions. I know what those things that are in my life that are vying and competing for my affections for Christ. And I can't have affections for both at the same time. You know, when he talks about the love of money is the root of all evil, it's not money, it's the love of it. When he talks about anything that competes and that I allow to sit on the throne in my life other than the Lord Jesus himself, then I'm losing the battle. I'm not walking in the power that he offers. It, it is a good thing, brothers and sisters, to examine ourselves, to see if we're in his will when it comes to these things. It's a good thing to say, Lord, show me things in my life that I need to surrender to you because I can deceive myself, my heart and yours is deceitfully wicked above all else. And yet he, as the author of life and the one who holds our life, is faithful. And we simply ask, Lord, give me wisdom. He says, if a man lacks wisdom, let him ask and he'll give it liberally, without reproach, without criticism. He doesn't ever say, oh, you dummy, it's about time you finally got it. I feel that way sometimes. But he's very gracious with us. Verse 41, the Jews then complained about him because he said, I'm the bread which came down from heaven. Have you ever noticed with the Jews, this is like their favorite sport, complaining. It's, they just love to do that. You know people like that? They just want to find fault with everything. Yeah, it's, it's exhausting. Uh, I mean, it's exhausting to listen to. I imagine that for that person, it's exhausting to be that way. dishonoring to God and they said is this not Jesus the son of Joseph whose father and mother we know how is it then that he says I've come down from heaven Jesus isn't Joseph's son he's God's son they're still missing it they're so familiar with Jesus that they can't hear him their need is to encounter him as Christ, not as Jesus from Nazareth. Their need, again, is to have an elevated view of who he is. To see he has power over a whole lot more than bread and fish. Jesus, therefore, verse 43, therefore answered and said to them, don't murmur among yourselves. He knew what they were doing because all things are open and bared before him. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. You know, we read this and if you've been a Christian for a while, you've read this more than once, maybe a bunch of times. And it's easy for us to read these things because we see it and we understand it. But you've got to realize these people are hearing this for the very first time and the Jews are scratching their heads. They are absolutely at odds, and, and the people there, the disciples as well, they're at odds. They don't understand. They can't comprehend these things. And as Jesus said, I, I will, I know the ones who are going to reject. And he's building here. He's challenging them. He's stretching them on purpose because he wants them to get it. He wants them to understand the message that he came to bring life, not bread. He's, he's so pressing these guys now. And he's going to continue to turn up the heat. Um, we're about out of time, and so I'm, I'm going to cut it short here. But the point is, this is tough stuff for them to hear. He says in verse 45, it's written in the prophets and they shall be all be taught by God. Therefore, anyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. He actually quotes the scripture to support his claim. 
Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. They're still struggling, and verse 49 doesn't help. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. Oh, well, maybe we don't want you to give us bread then, Jesus. <laughs> Excuse me, I think I have an appointment. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I'm going to stop there, folks. Father, work in us. Uh, Lord, we look at these passages and I just marvel at the richness of, of the revelation of who Jesus is, but beyond that, what he's about and who he still is and what he's still about in our lives. And so I pray, Father, I pray for each one in this room, each one, that you would meet us where we're at. And if we've come to know you, then you would stretch us and use us and build in us that relationship first that we could see your glory in our lives, that we could see your work. And Father, for those that perhaps don't know you, we pray this would be the day of salvation. This would be the day of understanding perhaps for the first time that you mean a whole lot more to us than our daily bread, but that you want to be Lord in our lives. So we thank you, Lord, for this time. We thank you for your word, for the richness of it, and as we consider Jesus, not just the carpenter's son, but the Christ, the Messiah. And as we draw closer to him, Lord, your word tells us he draws closer to us. And as we begin to turn our focus on Easter, upon the resurrection, the crucifixion, all that that means to us, we pray, Father, that you would be the object of our affections, that you and the work that you've done, the work that you're doing, that we would be mindful of that and that we would rejoice in the fact that you have simply called us to be your own. We praise you this morning. We thank you. We pray you'd go before our time together at the potluck and ask, Father, that our fellowship would be rich and it would be glorifying, honoring to you. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.